Let's pray again together. Father God, the Lord Jesus alone is our cornerstone. He alone is our rock. He alone is our firm foundation. He alone is the one that will enable us to stand through the storms of life. Father God, we thank you for your wonderful faithfulness to your people. Thank you that you are unchanging in character and in nature. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you are faithful to keeping your word and not one of the the wonderful promises that you've made within the scriptures will fail to be fulfilled in Christ. We thank you for the magnitude of those promises, for the promise of sins forgiven, for the promise of new life, for the promise of your indwelling spirit amongst believers today, for the promise of a wonderfully restored world. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that we can bank on those promises because you are a good and faithful God. And so as we turn our attention to your word very shortly, Lord, help us not only to hear your promises proclaimed loud from the scriptures, help us to take them to heart, help us to believe in them, help us to love them, help us to cherish them, and help those promises to affect our lives as we live for you in this world. And we pray it for your glory. Amen. Amen. But now it's time to get your Bibles open because we want to hear from God the living word of the living saviour who has hope to speak into our lives today. So Tom is going to come forward and read to us. Thanks, Tom. Our reading this morning is taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 11 and commencing at verse 20. Woe on unrepentant towns! Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. The Father revealed in the Son. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, And no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, 
and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Thank the Lord for that reading from his word. Thanks, Tom, very much. Well, uh, can I welcome you again? Good morning. Um, I just want to ask you a question uh, before I pray. Um, you know, when you think about the sovereignty of God, the fact that God is in control of everything, um, I've, my, my experience in the last few weeks has been very much that that is true. Um, in two weeks' time, it's the weekend away. Next week, I'm speaking on the election, engaging with the election, given it's coming up. And so that left this week with a little um, one-off. And Neil's away, so I was thinking, what do I teach on this one-off? Uh, three months ago, I, don't know, I can't really describe it, but I felt God had really heavily laid on my heart this passage. I don't really know why, but a number of things happened, and I felt this was the passage I had to teach. Uh, and it intrigued me also, because I don't think it's a passage I ever fully understood before. Um, so I started preparing. And then in light of the events this week with the death of Josiah, I continue to want to preach this passage because in God's sovereignty, this is a brilliant passage for a day like today because it offers great hope and great comfort for those who are grieving. And so I thank God for that. And I think this is one of the most important passages in the whole Bible because what it does is it slows us right down. It forces us to think about the big picture when everything is stripped away in life and when you face death, you're forced to think about big questions. It leaves you asking one question, what is life all about? That's what this passage addresses. So let's pray and ask for God's help to really understand the amazing truths that are hidden within it. Heavenly Father, you speak here of coming to you when we are weary and burdened and you will give us rest. I pray that by your spirit you would work in each of our hearts to show us what that rest is how it's possible to come to you and the difference that you will make in our life. Particularly pray this morning for anyone who's here who has heard all this before, but it's not real to them or doesn't even want to be here right now. I pray that you would open their eyes to see the incredible truth hidden within this passage. Please would you speak to us now by your spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Uh, last week I started um, a Bible overview with the discipleship group and one or two others from the church. And uh, we did an introduction to the Bible last week. And this is the first week on Wednesday when we're going to begin the first of the overviews. We're looking at Genesis. Uh, it's a book all about beginnings. It comes at the beginning of the Bible. The word means beginning. And it's a book of beginnings. And when you read Genesis, it puts in place three building blocks right at the heart. The first one is this, and it comes in the first four words of the Bible. Some of the most profound words that have ever been written. In the beginning, God. There's one foundation. That God has always existed. He's always been. He's the eternal one who created everything. He was here before the beginning. There's one foundation stone. Second one, God's made man in his own image. Mankind, man and woman. We are made in the image of God, which means in part that we're made and designed to reflect God. Just as God is a creative God, we're called to be creative. As God is a relational God, we are called to be relational. That's our second building block. The third one, what did God say to the first man and woman, Adam and Eve? He blessed them and said to them. See, God is a God who communicates and wants us to understand who he is. So he's the eternal God who always has been, always will be. 
He's the God who creates us in his image. And he's the God who longs for a relationship with us, to communicate with us. And if you get those three building blocks in place, what they're really saying is that at the center, the very big question that's more important than anything else in the whole world is for you and me to know God and to enjoy him. Take everything else out of the picture. That is the thing that God most wants for all of us, to know God and to enjoy him. And perhaps you sit there and go, well, that's rather bizarre. Don't get that at all. Maybe you think that's impossible. Maybe you think it's unnecessary. Or maybe your heart says, yeah, I want that. I want to know God and I want to enjoy him, but I have never experienced that myself. Not really. Well, the reason that these building blocks are true, and yet so often they don't seem to be the reality in our life, is because as human beings, rather than living for the glory of God with him at the center... All of us have turned in on ourselves, and we have become the centre of our lives. And you see, when God's not at the centre, I don't know him, and I certainly can't enjoy him. And when I don't enjoy God, I stop listening to him, and I seek to remember where my identity lies, and I forget altogether that he's the eternal creator who always has been and always will be. We turn in on ourselves, God no longer is at the centre. And the problem is, when we do that, is that life ultimately doesn't work. Sure, it works to a certain degree. We have a lot of fun. We can pursue whatever we want to do without God in our life. But it doesn't ultimately work. And here's why. Whatever in our life that we make ultimate instead of God isn't ultimate. And so it never truly satisfies our heart. Whatever it is in life that we build our identity on, it's not really who we are because we're made in the image of God. And so that never satisfies us either. And perhaps we, don't, we put a front on and we say to people, I'm perfectly happy not knowing God. But really, if you ask yourself honestly, right inside your heart, do you ever have that niggle? Surely I'm created for something more. And you see, we're left then in a broken world where we are in different ways weary and burdened. We experience the cracks of living in a broken world. And sometimes we stare in the face the harsh reality of living in a broken world. And death is one of the harshest realities, we, realities that we ever stare in the face. And it hurts. Of course it hurts. But it hurts God more. So you come to our passage. When Jesus comes and speaks these words into a broken, hurting world, they are so utterly profound that everything we need to hear. Listen to what he says. Jesus says, come to me, you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, we'd be wise to listen to these words. I spoke earlier about these three pillars, the eternal God who made us in his image, who wants to communicate with us. Well, that God has responded to the brokenness of our world, the hurt of our world. He's entered time and space in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, to fix the broken world. And yet the problem is we continue to ignore him. Just if you notice in that reading, here it comes. Just look at the beginning there. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Now, we've been doing a bit about miracles, haven't we, in John's Gospel. What is the purpose of miracles? Jesus isn't some egotist who wants a big following. He's not a magician who wants to impress. 
He is a man who performs miracles for one reason, to point people to himself. In John, the language is that of signs. He performs signs. You know, you know those guys who stand on the street with those billboards or the signs with McDonald's on it? McDonald's this way. It's a sign pointing to the reality. Now, McDonald's isn't a great reality to be pointing to. But the sign pointing to Jesus, that's completely different. That's the purpose of the miracles. But the problem is, many people didn't respond to his miracles because they didn't want to respond to him. And so what comes is these words of rebuke, 21 to the end. And he he calls out, woe to you. And in in colours there, yellow and red, they are the names of different cities. I'm going to explain this. But it's a pretty strong rebuke. He's saying... There's a very real danger when you choose to ignore me, when you continue to have a hard heart, when I've revealed myself to you, when I show you who I am, and you keep saying, no thanks, hand in pockets, I don't want to know. Jesus gives all of us a very stark warning. Okay, you're probably thinking, well, what's all that about? You started off talking about God and knowing him, and now we've got Jesus and towns and rebukes. It's all a bit random. Hang in there. Let's have a geography lesson. Here's Israel, okay? Jesus set up his ministry here at the top of Lake Tiberias, that's Galilee, okay, in a place called Capernaum. And nearby there were two other towns, Jerazen and Bethsaida. Here's where Jesus focused his ministry, particularly at the beginning. He performed his miracles, he revealed who he was to his people, and yet they continued to have hard hearts. They never responded to him. So what Jesus does is he draws a contrast between the places where he was, where people should know better, People who've heard this message of life that Jesus is offering. And he contrasts that with places up here, just north of the map where the Red Arrow is, Tyre and Sidon. Well, these are big merchant towns on the east coast of the Mediterranean. And they're wealthy, they're prosperous, they're proud, but they've turned in on themselves and they don't know God. And he also draws attention to this place down here at the bottom of the Dead Sea, Sodom, another godless city, proud, wealthy, but they've turned in on themselves and they don't know God. And what Jesus does is he says, listen, on the day of judgment, it will be better for these godless cities that don't know me than these cities where I've spent my life revealing myself and you continue to have hard hearts and not wanted to know. It's a serious challenge. And friends, to hear the Christian gospel, the fact that in our brokenness, God has entered time and space to fix the problem, to offer us forgiveness in the person of his son, to offer us life, To hear that he is the one that we're to build our identity on. And then to turn our back on him. Jesus says your guilt before God is huge. Because you've been offered life and you've turned your back on it. But it's into a weary and burdened world. A world that is looking for meaning. And we don't really know where we're looking. That God has come to give us hope. You see, I said at the beginning, the single most important thing in all of life is to know God and to enjoy him. And Jesus is the one who reveals God to us so that we can know him and so that we can enjoy him. Do you see how the reading goes on? At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things. That's the truth of the gospel, the truth about life and how we can know God. I've hidden these things from the wise and learned And revealed them to little children. You see, the work of Jesus is to reveal God to us. But not all will see. We thought about this last week, didn't we? And so Jesus draws a contrast between the wise and learned. People who think they know best. People who are so proud that they don't know God and don't want to know God. The wise and learned with little children. A picture of humility. 
a picture of teachability. And Jesus says, it's the little children who I will reveal to God, not the wise and learned. You see, faith is a gift. Faith is a gift. And therefore, you see at the bottom there, the bottom of that final verse, no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Faith is a gift. So what I want to do is to help us to see how when you've experienced that gift, you can experience the rest that Jesus is offering. These are the powerful words that he brings. Because Jesus wants to bring rest to a weary and broken world where there are symptoms of sin everywhere, our rebellion against God. The world is good, but it's broken. And therefore we cry out and it hurts. Now sometimes we bring pain on ourselves because of our rejection of God. But so often the pain and suffering we experience in this life is simply because we're living in a broken, mucked up world. And it's not our fault, but we feel it and it hurts. Well, Jesus wants to bring rest to you and me when we experience that. And that rest, I think, can mean all sorts of different things. Let me just walk through a few examples. Jesus wants you to experience comfort and rest by knowing that God understands pain. He lost his son. He knows what it is like to lose. God wants us to know rest in the sense of our desire not to need to be in control. You see, I want to be in control, which means I want all the answers to the questions why. I want to know exactly what's going to happen in my life so everything's safe. Jesus says you can have rest without being in control. What you need is me. Jesus wants to give you rest from the low view of you have of yourself. If you hate yourself, you're never good enough. Because he looks at you and says, stop listening to what you think about yourself. Stop listening to what other people say about yourself. Listen to what I say, Jesus says. I created you, and I love you, and I think you're absolutely fantastic. He wants to give rest to people who don't even like themselves. He wants to give rest to people who worry. You know the sort of thing in life where you're on a treadmill, and it, all it ever does is speeds up, and you're running faster and faster and faster, worrying about everything. Perfectly legitimate things to worry about. But he wants to give you rest and ask you the question, what's driving your busyness and your worry? Have you forgotten that I'm in control? He, he wants to give us physical rest. So often we rest simply to recharge our batteries so we can work more. But the purpose of rest goes so much deeper than that. God wants us to rest so that we can slow down, so that we can listen, so that we can taste. So often food's just fuel so I can do more stuff. He wants us to enjoy him. Rest is a chance to listen, to slow down, to rest, to reflect, to laugh, to enjoy God. He wants to give us rest from the pressure we put on ourselves to perform, to be something before other people, because the real us we don't want to reveal to people. He wants to give us rest from driving ourselves with overwork, you know, we serve a gracious God. He doesn't need perfection from us. I think that's a lesson that many of us need to hear, particularly some of the working men. He doesn't need perfection from us. Listen to what one American has said. God is the only boss who will never drive you into the ground 
and the only audience that doesn't need your best performance in order to be satisfied by you. Grace can impact the way that you work. Here's just a little pastoral note to some, particularly those who perhaps do overwork. Um, To put it really bluntly, God is not impressed when you work yourselves to death. Because he's infinite, you're not. He created your limits, he knows them. And he was fully aware of them before he created you. So here, think about the difference between excellence and perfectionism. Of course we want to be excellent for God. We want to do our very best to honour him for all that he's done for us. But he never asks from us perfection, because he's perfectly perfect. Which means that I do my very best, but I don't have to be perfect. And sometimes I can let things go. Sometimes I can say it wasn't my best. And that's okay. See, sometimes our hard work, even our hard work for God, can actually lead us further away from God. Because what we end up doing for God becomes our ultimate focus. And we actually lose sight of who we're doing it for. I have to remind myself of that all the time in my job. What I do for God is not as important as knowing God. And when I die one day, I don't want someone to remember me as a hard-working pastor who did this, that and the other. Though I hope and pray that this, that and the other will be a blessing to people and I will be hard-working. I want to be remembered for someone who had an insatiable appetite to know God more. And I hope that you would want that too. God wants each of us to experience rest from all those things that you feel weary and burdened by. But also when he speaks these words, come to me, you who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. He's also speaking of rest in a perfect and eternal sense. Forgiveness for a guilty soul, freedom for those who feel burdened, and then a sense of purpose and joy and peace. He's speaking of eternal rest. And that is what Josiah is enjoying now. Jesus said to him, come to me, Josiah. You're weary, you're burdened, and I will give you rest. Do you know the most amazing thing about Josiah to me? When everything was stripped away in the last days of his life, the one thing he wanted was to know God more. Because he said to his parents throughout every day, please pray with me. Why do you pray? Because you want to be closer to God. Here was a young man who knew the answer to life in his last days. He wanted to know God and enjoy him. And he's doing that perfectly now for all of eternity. But how is all this possible? How can we experience this rest that Jesus offers Have a look at verse 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Uh, I don't think I understood this passage. A few weeks ago, I was talking to a friend of mine um, about this passage, and I think I was thinking about this and yoking. This is a yoke. It's a wooden contraption that goes round the neck of two oxen or similar animals so that they pull together and it shares the load. And when they're at work... This is what happens. I always thought this passage was this sort of a yoke. I'm convinced now that it's not this kind of yoke. Jesus speaks of yokes on a number of occasions. In another place, I think he does refer to this kind of a yoke. But here, I think he's speaking of that kind of a yoke. The yoke that an individual carries. 
So it's not so much that in my burdens, Jesus draws alongside and helps me, and he is my strength, though those things are true. I think he's thinking more of this kind of a yoke. The yoke that an individual wears to help balance a load and to carry it. You see, the yoke that Jesus is talking about is learning from it. Is it not a surprise to you? Jesus says, come to me, you who are weary and burdened. I'll give you rest. And the very next verse, he says, take my yoke upon you. You're thinking, I've just given you everything. I've taken this burden off. And now you're putting a yoke around my neck. It's exactly what I thought you'd do, God. Until we understand that the yoke he puts around our neck is this. To learn from him. In the Old Testament, it spoke of the yoke of slavery. And in the New Testament, some of the writers speak about the yoke or the demands of the law. The reason I think it's this kind of a yoke is if you go on to chapter 12, what have you got? You've got religious leaders who are loading God's people up with things they have to do. And in chapter 12, it's keeping the Sabbath. Laws, what do I need to do to get right so that God will accept me? The problem with that yoke, the yoke that they were putting around God's people, is that yoke never fit. It was never meant to fit. And the burden was too great. But notice Jesus says something different. He doesn't drive us harder like the religious leaders do. He simply draws us to himself. There's the difference. He is gentle and humble in heart. And it's because of that that we find rest for our souls. So he speaks about his yoke being easy. Now, that doesn't mean that life is easy. Jesus isn't being flippant. When you carry serious pain, it's not easy. But what he's speaking of when he says his yoke is easy is the sense that his yoke fits. His yoke is the one we're meant to wear. Because as I said at the beginning, we were created to have God at the center of our lives. To follow his lead. That's how his yoke is easy. And then he says, and my burden is light. Well, of course, he doesn't mean the physical thing I'm carrying because the weight of living in a broken world can be so heavy. The burden is light because everything in me, when I experience pain and grief, wants to fix the problem, wants to understand the problem, wants to take the problem away. And Jesus just says, come to me. Don't try and fix anything. Just come to me. Many of us are very linear in the way we think, aren't we? Here's A, and if I do B, I'll get to C. Particularly the blokes. It's just a reality. Jesus doesn't want us to be linear. He doesn't say, fix the problem, understand the problem, be something. He just says, come to me. That is why his burden is light. That's all he asks of us. And yet we load ourselves and other people up with expectation all the time. When he just says, come to me and enjoy me. what Jesus is getting at in this passage is he's longing that he would so satisfy our hearts and become so big to us that our deepest desire is to know him and to enjoy him. And so when Jesus says to you and I, come to me, what he's really asking you is this, am I enough for you? Am I enough for you? Do you notice in the reading... There's an invitation. It comes twice. Verse 28, come to me. And in verse 29, take my yoke. It's an invitation to come to God. With all our baggage, with all of our brokenness, with all of our hurt, come to me, he says. Remember what John, Jesus said in John's Gospel, chapter 6? Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. 
But notice too, there's the invitation, come and take. But notice how exclusive this invitation is. Come to me. Take my yoke upon you. Why is Jesus so exclusive in what he claims? Because he knows that it's only him who can offer this kind of rest. You will not find this rest anywhere else in this world. And whatever it is that you choose to serve that's not God will end up eating you alive because it won't truly satisfy your heart simply because we were created to know God and to enjoy him. So I guess for the majority here who have already put your trust in Jesus, you have found the eternal rest of the forgiveness of your sin. But this may be a time for you just to reorientate your own heart. Think about your priorities. Think about the way that you think. Think about the way that you act every day. To perhaps start viewing yourself as God views you and to stop driving yourself so hard. He wants you to experience his rest. There may also be some here who know deep in your heart you've never known that rest. Not truly. And you want to come to Jesus for the first time. You know the story of Pilgrim's Progress? This guy's called Christian. He carries this massive burden all through life. And he goes on the journey of life and he meets different people who provide different solutions and answers. But only at the end of the story does burden. Do you see there? Cast off his burden. It rolls down the mountain. And what does he do? He falls on his knees at the foot of the cross. What had Christian learnt? He had learnt that Jesus was enough for him. He had learnt that Jesus' yoke was easy and his burden was light. Jesus had become enough for him. So do you see now how this whole story fits together? It started a bit random, but it's not random at all because it started off with a rebuke. Wake up! to the realities of life. We get so caught up in what we're doing. God just says, wake up, I'm God, and I created you to know me. Do all the things that you enjoy, but don't forget, I am at the center of your life. Know me and enjoy me. It starts with a rebuke, but do you notice how it finishes with that tender invitation? Come to me. just going to read a tiny bit from... The book, The Silver Chair, which is the last of the stories that C.S. Lewis wrote in the Chronicles of Narnia. And it's about a girl named Jill who was lost in a scary forest. She cries and cries and she develops a terrible thirst. As she looks for water, she happens upon a stream and eagerly runs towards it. But then she notices a a lion is lying beside it. She stops in her tracks. The lion, knowing she's in thirsty, invites her to come and drink. May I? Could I? Would, would you mind going away while I do? said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at his motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for his convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to to do anything to me if I do come? I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now, without noticing it, she'd come a step closer. Do you eat girls? I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting. 
nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. The lion just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming a step further. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. Let's just take a moment to digest something of what's been said as we pray that into our own hearts and lives so that would be a reality that we might come to Christ and find rest in him daily. Take a minute now. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. In a moment we're going to sing our final song, Amazing Grace, which may be familiar to many. And the last verse, of course, gives us a glimpse, I guess, of that wonderful rest that is there for those who trust in Christ when we've been there 10,000 years, bright, shining as the sun. We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. And my prayer on the back of today is that by the grace of God, we all would be ready just as Josiah was ready. And there only is one way to be ready, right? To flee to Jesus today and to lay your burdens at his feet and know that he alone can deal with them and has dealt with them at the cross. So we're going to sing together as we close. Let's stand.